Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 20, 17 to 19. I remember the first sermon that I ever preached. Uh, It was wretched and miserable and terrible, and I knew about it several weeks beforehand. And every time I thought about this sermon coming up, I had this knot in my stomach that wouldn't go away. The first time I was ever going to stand up in front of any group of people and preach in any sort of way. It was just this terrible, awful feeling. And I studied and studied and studied and studied and studied. And every time I thought about that date when I was going to stand up in front of people, my knees shook. That knot just continued to grow. I felt like I was going to throw up all over myself right there every time I thought about it. Have you ever felt those moments of dread that you look at in the future? You get the date on the calendar circled. You know something is coming and you feel that moment of dread. This is what I call the downward passages of life. These moments where you just feel like you're walking down this tunnel of doom and on the other side awaits utter despair. Those moments in life you know are coming, but you look at them with dread and everything in your stomach just knots up. Do you ever think about these downward passages that await us all? Something far more serious than a sermon, if you can believe that. Things like death, cancer, sickness, disease. Things like poverty, other kinds of of suffering, perhaps the death of a spouse. Things that when we look at in the future, we know for all of us, they're coming. Almost a certainty should the Lord tarry. You ever think about those? In our passage this morning, Jesus, for the third time in the book of Matthew, is going to predict his impending suffering. He's going to tell the disciples this. Look at Matthew 20, 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help this text to be made real to us, that you would shed light on this text for us. You would open our eyes to what you're saying here. That perhaps even for the first time, if it is for some people, that we would grasp the reality of the world we're living in. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Thanksgiving is past us. Christmas is rapidly approaching. And I'm going to continue to preach through the Gospel of Matthew, as we have been doing. However, 
over the next few weeks, I think you'll see, as our text will point out, we're going to turn our attention to understanding Christmas all the more. As Providence would have it, we're in a portion of the book of Matthew where Jesus is going to explain to His disciples and to others precisely why He's come. So look at that. Right there, we find ourselves three straight weeks in practically a Christmas passage. Now, in verse 28, which is the passage we'll get to next week, Jesus actually tells the disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life for a ransom for many. So He, he says it outright there in verse 28. But the passage this week and the passage the week after next are perhaps not phrased so neatly as, this is why I came, but they still give us the reasons why He came. And I want you to see that. Now, I've said many times that the culture around us is quite happy to celebrate Christmas. Have you noticed that? The culture around us is quite happy to celebrate Christmas. All the kids get out for two weeks of school and things like this, and that's nice. And then you get off work, and that's, that's good too. And you'll see that Christmas represents to the rest of the world a holiday that's relatively non-threatening. There's people that will, companies, secular companies that will sell nativity scenes, like Talked about a couple years ago, Fisher Price will sell a, a manger scene, ironically. And if you think about it, it's really quite a nice story. If you really just trim out all the crucifixion and all, the, all that kind of stuff, if you trim out all that and you just have this like little manger story, it's kind of a sweet little story. There's a poor to lower middle class family, they're having their first child, they're journeying to a distant location, they're under compulsion of a tyrannical government. That's interesting, right? It's this little cute family. There's no room for them in the inn, so they end up sheltering in this little barn or stable. They, she finally gives birth to this perfect little cute baby and they wrap him in swaddling cloths and lay him down in a manger. And it's really sweet if you think about it. I mean, you add Candace Cameron to that, and it's a Hallmark movie, right? Has all the makings. But for Christians, we can't really afford to think about the Christmas story in only these terms. Christmas actually makes no sense without Easter. As a standalone story, it makes absolutely no sense. Easter is the only thing that makes it make sense. So for the next few weeks, we'll be turning our attention to the Christmas story and we'll examine the many reasons, some of the many reasons for Jesus' coming. The passage that we find ourselves in this morning is three little verses where Jesus is going to tell His disciples what's about to happen. And within these three verses are subtle reminders of why Jesus is coming. The first thing that He says is that He is coming to destroy the religious authority of the Jews. He's coming to destroy the religious authority of the Jews. Look at verses 17 and 18. And, Jesus, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. Jesus and His disciples are somewhere near Jericho. They're, they're to the north and to the east of Jerusalem, and they're camped out in a 
uh, city, probably Jericho. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks that they're in Jericho. They're leaving Jericho, and so that's probably where they're at. Now, you should picture in your mind, as they're going up to Jerusalem, you should picture in your mind a caravan of people, a very, very large group of people walking up to the city of Jerusalem. And there would be, uh, obviously, and amongst that large caravan of people, there's going to be Jesus' disciples, the twelve. There's going to be probably the 70, which is the broader group of Jesus' disciples. There's also going to be their family members, so that perhaps their wives, their children. We're going to see next week their mothers are there too. Their fathers are probably with them. Everybody's traveling up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. There's going to be a ton of people, perhaps even some that Jesus doesn't know at all, or doesn't know in the earthly sense, you get what I'm saying. They're they're traveling all together in a pack. They're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In all likelihood, all the caravan is from the region of Galilee, somewhere up north. They're all traveling in a big group. They're safer in packs, as you can imagine. Well, this is why we see next week that the mother of the two disciples is going to approach Jesus and ask him a question. She's not normally one that would probably be following Jesus, but she is because she's in the caravan as they all go to celebrate the Passover. But here, Jesus, out of the caravan of people, pulls the twelve disciples aside off the road as they're walking and wants to talk just to them so that no one else overhears, kind of like what a teacher would do as they're on a class field trip, you know? They're all going to the aquarium, pulls the class outside of the rest of the group and says, listen, everybody go to the bathroom, keep your hands off of one another, that sort of thing. So he's giving the disciples one last little speech before they go up there. Now, one way to see what he is telling them is that he's just, you know, telling them this so that when it happens, they won't be alarmed, that he's just trying to calm them down trying to make them aware of what's happening. So they're not surprised when he's actually arrested or when he's put to death. And there's some truth to that. This is the third time Jesus has told the disciples what is going to happen to him. This is the third time in just a few chapters, actually, that he has told the disciples what's going to happen to him. He's in the, and we're going to see the repeated effect that this actually has on the disciples. The first time he says this is in Matthew 16, 22 to 23. And and when he says this, Peter responds and he says this, Far be it from you, Lord. He just told him he's going to die. And Peter corrects him and he says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So the first time he said it to the disciples, didn't go so well for Peter, all right? The second time he tells them is in, in the next chapter, in chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And, he, and Matthew adds this, and they were greatly distressed, all right? So the second time, the disciples don't say anything to Jesus. Probably because of what happened to Peter the chapter before, right? No one is in an all-fire hurry to be called Satan by Jesus, all right? So they keep it quiet, but Matthew gives us insight into what's going on in their heart. They're greatly distressed. They're troubled by what Jesus is actually saying to them. But this third time, notice that he tells them, and there's no response from the disciples at all. Now, 
we know that they don't totally comprehend what's going on. And the reason we know that is, one, because of what Peter has just said to, to them, to Jesus, and two, because of what uh, James and John's mother is going to say to Jesus in the next passage that we'll talk about next week. We know that they don't totally get what's going on, but it does seem that to repeatedly tell them this, they have some sense of preparation. We've heard him say this before. They probably are greatly troubled by it, but they've been calmed down and they've grown to expect what he has said here, and they kind of, in some sense, understand what's going to happen. However, there's more to this than might appear on the surface, I think. Remember that the section of Matthew that we're in has Jesus attacking the religious elites. The religious system of the Pharisees and the Jews, he is going to attack this religious system of the Jews continually in this section. We're going to see him do it repeatedly, time and time again. He's going to come into Jerusalem in a few passages, and everyone's going to hail him as King and Savior, as Messiah. In a couple weeks, we're going to see him called the Son of David. People are going to recognize him as King. He's going to tell all these parables about that illustrate Israel's moral failure. That, that's going to illustrate Israel's rejection by God because of their unbelief and their disobedience. He's going to tell all kinds of parables like this and illustrate it with a fig tree and all kinds of other things. He's going to pronounce woes of judgment on religious leaders. An entire chapter in 23 where he just goes through and pronounces woes on the Jews. Eventually, he's even going to tell them in 24 that the temple that you're looking at is going to be torn down brick by brick. But he's already assured them, no worries. Something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus has already set himself up as above the temple, as above the Jewish system. And now he's coming in as the champion of the kingdom of heaven, as its king, walking into the most religious city that there is and telling everyone, I've come to do battle with you. So Jesus is not only telling them the future to calm their nerves, He's laying out for them His battle plan. He's telling them exactly how it's going to happen. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. You know, the most holy city you know of. The city you have been going to every year since you were a child. The one where you make sacrifices. The one where you worship on all the holiest days of the year. And while we're there, some of the holiest people that you know of in your mind, some of the holiest people that you know of are going to kill me. Jesus knows this is going to happen, and it's part of His plan. Jesus and the religious authorities in Jerusalem, in other words, are on different sides of the aisle. And everything that Jesus has been teaching to His disciples has been against the religious authorities that are in Jerusalem. You understand that? When He says, I'm going in and they're going to kill me, they're going to plot to kill me. He's telling them, we are on different sides of the aisle. 
You can't be with me and be with them. We're on two different opposite ends of the spectrum. You cannot take part with me and take part with them as well. But if you rewind the Gospel of Matthew, you will see that Matthew has been telling you this since the very beginning of the story. You remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 2. I know you remember this story because it's coming to bear right now in the season that we're in. The Magi come to Jerusalem to try to find this this baby Jesus that they know has been born. And we see it in chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 where uh, they asked, the Magi asked uh, Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the, uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why was he troubled? And why was Jerusalem troubled? Just a couple of verses before this, before that passage, an angel shows up to Joseph. And do you remember what the angel tells Joseph? That this Jesus who's coming into the world is going to save his people from their sins. Why would you be troubled by that? Why would you be worried about that? That sounds like the greatest news in all the world. He's coming to save his people from their sins. There's nothing more hopeful than the message that the angel gives to Joseph there at the end of chapter 1. But how does Herod react to this news that this king has been born? He sends men to try to kill him. Then we're going to see later on in the gospel that the Jews in Jerusalem actually are so troubled that they send a delegation to confront Jesus in Galilee. See, they understand him not as a hope, but as a threat. He's a threat to their rule. He's a threat to the establishment. What should be a moment of rejoicing, the culmination of all the hope of all their ancestors from eons past, has now come, has been born, and they don't feel hope or joy. They are threatened. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for a showdown that's going to take place with the Jewish authorities. He's preparing them for the moment when the kingdom that he is bringing is going to do battle with the establishment of the Jewish authorities. Does he do it? Paul tells us, Paul tells a group of people at Antioch in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 to 39, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, he came to destroy the religious authority of the Jews, and he accomplished it. But second, he says he's coming to suffer the humiliation of men and the wrath of God. He's coming to suffer the humiliation of men and the wrath of God. Look at the end of verse 18 and also verse 19. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. This is the biggest change between all the previous predictions that he's given, the other two that he's given. 
He adds this little handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He adds that in. That's a detail they haven't had before, that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to consider for a moment what this means for Jesus in just the short term. That he's going to be crucified. It's not insignificant that he is going to be mocked and flogged and crucified publicly. He's going to be, in other words, he's telling them, I'm going to be humiliated in front of everyone. That's not insignificant. Jesus had been preaching, think about it for just a second, Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of heaven. And he's setting himself up as the authority on all matters of the kingdom of heaven. I am the answer. I am bringing the kingdom of heaven. And now he's saying, they're going to publicly ridicule me. They're going to beat me and they're going to kill me. Wait, 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 wait. King of the kingdom of heaven, they're going to publicly ridicule me, mock me, and kill me. Something doesn't add up. You're the king of heaven. You walk on water, calm the storm, you heal the blind, raise the dead, the lame walk because of you, and they're going to ridicule you and kill you? How does that work? It undermines what Jesus has been teaching this whole time. Imagine for just a second that I said, uh, I'm wanted by the FBI. That at some point in the near future, the FBI is going to find me. They are going to hunt me down. They're going to try me. And then they're going to execute me by public hanging. Every last person in this room, and anybody watching, would be thinking to themselves, what did you do? Right? What if I added to that, every pastor in this town is going to give them my phone number and my home address so that they can find me easily. They're all going to turn me in. They're all going to rat me out. A grand total of zero people in this room, or even watching, would think I was innocent. What if I swore to you I was innocent? I'm innocent, I tell you. you. You would think to yourself, wait a minute. The FBI has the goods on you, and they're going to execute you. And all the pastors in this town also think you're guilty? You're guilty. <laughs> it's no small thing that Jesus is telling them, the Jewish authorities, the holiest people you know, and the Roman government are going to come together in cahoots they're going to publicly mock and humiliate me and kill me. Public humiliation, especially by crucifixion, is a sign to everybody walking down the road that can see these people hanging on crosses. It's a sign to everybody that was a preposterous plan, whatever they tried to do. Whatever crime they tried to commit was preposterous. This is how these kinds of notions end. So the Roman government and the Jews in this case, are telling everybody that's looking on. The people up here, you don't want to be like them. Kingdom of God, huh? <laughs> we'll see. But wait, it gets worse. 
Jesus tells them that he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. Well, it seems like a, just a little insignificant phrase. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. It's just a statement of fact. He's going to be given over to the Gentiles. But Jesus, this, this phrase is really interesting because of the way it is used throughout the Bible. And what is really interesting is that when the apostles begin to share the gospel with people, they manage to use a phrase very similar to this. They at least indicate in some way that Jesus stood trial in front of the Gentiles. Why would they do that? That seems like just kind of a meaningless detail. Okay, so what? He was killed. That's the point. No. He was tried by the Gentiles. He was handed over to the Gentiles. He was handed over to the nations. It's the same thing. Handed over to Gentiles, handed over to the nations. It's the same thing. Why do they say this? Look at Acts 2.23. This Jesus, this is Peter preaching. This is the first time he's really preaching the gospel. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed, how? By the hands of lawless men. These are men without the law. This is the nations. You tried and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So then the next time Peter preaches the gospel, in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied, where? In the presence of Pilate, a Gentile, when he had decided to release him. So the very next chapter... Peter is praying, and he says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the nations, and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Paul even says, when he's talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So all this early Christian preaching all has this same statement in it or this same kind of presentation of the gospel that this Jesus stood trial in front of the nations. He, was tes he testified to the truth and was tried in front of the Gentiles. But the reason that it was so fundamental to early Christian preaching is because suffering at the hands of the Gentiles was how a Jew knew he was suffering the wrath of God. He was handed over to the nations. Consider Leviticus 26, 32-33 and verse 38. This is God talking to the Jews. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. That's the Gentiles. And I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. Or Psalm 106.41, He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Ezra 9, 7, From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. 
in addition to all of these Old Testament passages, in addition to the gospel preaching we have in the New Testament, we have this, the, all these writings in the middle, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Jews who suffered under countless regimes that came in and conquered them over and over again. They continued to write down their prayers to God. And some of the things that they prayed is, should they ever sin, that He might discipline them with forbearance and not hand them over to the blasphemous and barbarous nations. Their prayer is that He wouldn't turn them over to His wrath by handing them over to the Gentiles. In his book, The Cross from a Distance, Peter Bolt says this, in this final passion prediction, Jesus states that He will be handed over to the nations. This is tantamount to being delivered over to the wrath of God. Just as Israel was once delivered over to the nations under the wrath of God, so the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the Christ, will be handed over into the nations, into the hands of the nations, by Israel's leaders. So there's no doubt that as soon as Jesus says that He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles for crucifixion, the disciples who are listening to that are disgusted by that thought. They're thinking to themselves, it's going to be that bad? I didn't know it was going to be that bad. Not only are the religious authorities after you, not only are the Romans after you. But God's wrath is on you too? Wow. That's significant. That's crazy. He's not just going to be tried by the so-called holy men and the governing authorities. He's going to suffer the wrath of God the Father. The one whose very will he has committed himself to doing every step of the way, with whom up to this point he had never experienced anything but complete and total unity of fellowship, he's going to face his wrath. But Christian, do you understand what this means for you? Do you know what it means that the captain of your salvation was born as a helpless baby, coming voluntarily, mind you, that He might stare down Jerusalem. That He might stare down the religious authorities and the system of the Jews. That He might stare down the wrath of the very God that sent Him. All of those places in your life feel as though they're those downward trajectories. All of those places in your life where fear and doubt and trepidation and all of that loom really large in front of you are actually trials of sanctification. Where God is drawing you closer to Himself. Now, it doesn't feel like that at the time. Cancer certainly doesn't feel like God is drawing me closer to Himself. Suffering, losing a spouse, doesn't feel like God is drawing me closer to Himself. I know. 
But it's precisely through suffering that one enters the kingdom of God. And we know that's true precisely because that's what Christ went through for us. He did it so that we might be brought near to God. No one else could have done that, so He did. Now, from the moment He was born until the very week we're reading about in Matthew, He endured this impending doom, this knot in His stomach. We'll see in the garden, it's, it's a knot in His stomach for sure. There's a lot of trepidation about it. There's this impending doom feeling that He's walking into. And He did that from the time He was little until now. He knew what His course was. And He did that for His people. He endured His Father's wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to. So because He has done this, then, He has turned those downward passages of our life into passages of ascendancy. Passages that bring us closer to God, not further away. Passages that increase our sanctification. Because Jesus has come to suffer the humiliation of men and the wrath of God. Your moments of despair, it might be humiliation from men, it might be physical suffering like cancer or disease, it might be a number of things. Fear not, Christian, for the one thing it is not, we are guaranteed, is the wrath of God. I can't say about those moments of suffering that God must be so intensely angry with me that I'm suffering His wrath. It might be discipline for sin, sure. But it's not wrath. How do I know that? Because Christ was our substitute. Christ was my substitute. He's the one that suffered the wrath of God so that I wouldn't have to. That little baby in the manger scene came as a substitute for you. He came to suffer the humiliation of men and the wrath of God, but third, he's telling his disciples he's coming to die and be vindicated by God. Look at what he says in 19. And he, that is the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, the resurrection made perfect sense to nearly every Jew of that time. The resurrection from the dead, when dead bodies would actually come up out of the grave and be resurrected, it made perfect sense to the vast majority of Jews. There were a very liberal upper crust of people that were mostly the religious elites. They were the very rich in society. They had the vast majority of the power in society. They were represented by a group called the Sadducees. You'll see them pop up from time to time in Scripture, that upper crust of society was the minority in society, and they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. In fact, they didn't believe in much of nothing about the Bible. All right, The first five books, that was about it. Okay, But the vast majority of people represented the, the common man, so to speak, were poorer on the whole, they were represented by the Pharisees. You'll see them pop up in time, from time to time in Scripture. They did not have tons of power in society. But they were the vast majority of people. 
And they did believe. They believed in all 39 books of the Old Testament. They believed that there would be a real Messiah coming one day who would establish His kingdom, who would raise the dead bodily. They believed in pretty much all of those things. They believed that He would establish His kingdom at His coming. No one, though, not one of them really, had any idea that the Messiah would come, would suffer and die, would rise again on the third day, would ascend into heaven, and then would come back one day later for the resurrection of the dead. Almost no one had that idea. So the timeline of what actually took place that Jesus is talking about exposed really everyone's misunderstanding of Scripture. Now, But I want you to think for just a second. Why death is a necessity? Why is death a necessity for anyone? Well, death is a necessity, we know, because of sin. Sin came into the world, and death became a necessity. But specifically, it's God's judgment on sin. God judged sin. He told them, uh, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they ate of it, and He pronounced judgment, namely, that one day they would die. So death, then, rightfully claims everyone who is guilty of sin, who's touched by sin, which is certainly everyone in this room, myself included. Everyone in this world. Everyone's touched by death. Because everyone's touched by sin. So then I wonder what would happen in the event that God's wrath, His judgment on sin, was fully poured out. What would happen if the cup of his wrath was drained to the bottom. What would happen? What would happen to the curse of, of sin then? There's no more punishment to give. What would happen to the curse of death? What, what if the one on whom his wrath was poured out was actually innocent of all charges? He was the one person not touched by sin at all. What would happen in that case. It would seem that then, if that was the case, that was really true, that he had no sin, and yet God's wrath was also poured out on him, it would seem then that death or the grave wouldn't be able to hold him. Right? Wouldn't that be what it would seem like? Well, then the, the grave wouldn't be able to hold him. The grave should spit him back out because the grave should realize, I can't hold this man. He's not guilty of sin like everybody else that I've been holding. The author of Hebrews tells us about Christ's death in Hebrews 13, 20. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Listen to what he says there. Look at what he says there. Leave that scripture up there. Jesus was brought back from the dead. How? By the blood of the eternal covenant. That is, by His blood. The blood of the covenant. His blood. His death brought Him back to life. In other words, what He's saying there is that His death actually accomplished His resurrection. Why? Because on the cross, sin was fully atoned for. It accomplished what He set out to do. 
So the resurrection then is a public declaration by God Himself that what Christ did on the cross worked. That's what He's saying. The resurrection is a declaration to everyone that Christ's death on the cross worked. He's vindicated in front of the watching world. Paul tells us in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. It was a declaration to everyone. Yes, this is my beloved Son, and yes, I am well pleased in Him. So in the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated. But I want you to think about what that means for what Jesus is now telling His disciples here in Matthew 20, verse 19. He's told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. There, that holiest city that you've ever been to, the city you, you went to ever since you were a little boy, every single year you went there. And you went there to pay sacrifice for your sins. Sins you knew you were guilty for. You went to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats every year because you knew you were indebted to God for your sin. And while we're there, holiest people in all of Jewish society are going to collude with the Romans and they're going to decide together. The authority of the land and the authority of the temple are going to decide together that I deserve death. Literally, everyone you know is going to be against me. Except God. And three days after they kill me, He's going to make that clear to you. That the people that thought they were on God's side were not. And God is going to so decide in my favor that He is going to reverse the curse of death and spit me out of the grave. Imagine that claim. Think about that for just a second. Before the fourth day of decay, God is going to reverse the curse of death because I'm innocent. All of the Jews and all of the Romans who assume that God or the gods are on their side because they have power, because they have authority, they're going to kill me and they're going to assume that in killing me they're doing God's justice. And three days after they kill me, they're going to realize they were wrong. They'll collude against me. But the God of the universe is actually for me. I want you to think about some of the things this Christmas that this passage teaches us. As we put up our lights, put up our trees, drive around and look at Christmas lights, bake Christmas cookies, exchange presents, do all of the festivities that revolve around this holiday, as you look at that manger scene, I want you to think of some things. First, I want you to consider you're going to die one day. 
That's not the happiest Christmas message I realize. I want you to really think about that, though. That one day I'm going to die. Young people included. Think to yourself, one day I'm going to die. In fact, the younger the better. Think to yourself, one day I'm going to die. One day I'm going to be laying there in the hospital bed. One day I'm going to be grasping for the last breath. One day all of my loved ones, all of my family, are going to gather perhaps around my deathbed. There in that hospital maybe. One day they're all going to gather there. One day they're all going to share stories of ways maybe I impacted them or funny things that I did or stupid things that I did. One day that's going to happen to me and I'm going to be the one that everyone's gathering around. I'm going to be the one suffering from the disease. I want you to think about that. Just put that in your mind for just a second. And then second, I want you to see what it means that Christ came. In that moment, think about what it means that Christ came to reverse the curse of death. Think about that for just a second. What that means in that moment to you, that Christ came to reverse the curse of death. That you're not going to live in the grave forever. Just think about that. That His resurrection, I'm going to experience one day. That my body is actually going to be resurrected from the dead. I want you to think about what that means. That though every person will face that same fate, that resurrection to eternal life is for those who believe in Christ. That's incredible. That's an incredible reversal, is it not? Particularly in that moment. But then I want you to ask yourself, as you look into that manger scene, you see that little baby laying there in the manger. Do I love him? I want you to ask him, not do I believe in him? I don't want you to ask yourself that question. Do I believe in him? I want you to ask yourself, do I love him? Those are different questions. Well, they're not different in the Bible. They're different in our minds. Do I love Him? Romans 8, 28. says, We know that all things work together for good. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead, by the way. Right there. All things work together for good. They, they lead to my resurrection. All things work together for good to those who love God. You love it. I get you do the reading plans. You read through the Bible in a year. I get you use your highlighter when you read and you underline and you study and you ask questions and you show up to church. I get that you're in the Bible studies. I get that you do those kinds of things. Do you love Him? Deep down in your heart, do you actually love Him? If not, only you know that, but if not, you're dangling over the precipice of hell. 
right now. And all the while you think you're a Christian. Because you do all the things. You come and you, you, you celebrate and you, you do all the things. And you remind everybody on Christmas, well, this is really about Jesus' birth. You bake the cake and you sing happy birthday to Jesus on Christmas Day. And you do all the things. But you don't love him. Because really, there's things that change because you love someone. Aren't there? Are there things that change because you love someone? Haven't you made changes in your life because you love a spouse or you love a friend or you love your kid? Because you love someone, you've made some serious changes. You've left some things that you realize that's worthless. I don't really care about those things because I care about this more. But yet when you do inventory of your own heart, what you find is that your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations are all filled with things of the world. And the faith that we proclaim week in and week out never actually makes it into your daily life. And all you can think about is how boring everything is in church. What you've really become is the chief priests and the scribes. You're not a friend of Jesus. You're colluding against Jesus. All the while you think God is on your side. When you truly love God, then you can, just like Jesus here, embrace those seemingly downward passages in your life, knowing that because of Christ, they're not downward. They're actually passages of ascendancy, and they're bringing you closer to Himself, because in Jesus, the God of the universe is for you. All of those passages are doing exactly what Jesus has told you all the way back at the beginning of this gospel about the people that belong in his kingdom, poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. All of those downward passages are causing you to be poorer in spirit. They're causing you to mourn. They're causing you to seek harder after righteousness. And so they become not downward, but upward. That's the reason you can embrace them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for our hearts. Lord, you would knit them together. That you would reveal to us our own hearts. That like a mirror, we would look at them. We would see them that you would open our eyes and you would, we would see sin, hatred, blasphemy. That we would see hearts that have not been changed. We would see areas of our life where we are woefully short. And we would repent. Give us that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.